frequently when I make the models, people laugh and sort of um, joke about it or make fun of it in、mm. a way that's that's surprising to me. Welcome to Untold Santa Cruz. I'm your host Ryan Holmes. Thank you so much for joining today. In each episode, we learn from people that make this town more beautiful through their spirit, focus, and imagination. We distill knowledge for our own lives through conversations with others. Sometimes the best advice isn't advice at all. Today's guest builds functional art out of wood. To call it furniture doesn't really do it justice. He quit a promising career in biotech after realizing it wasn't really his calling. His wanderlust earlier in life took him on many rickety boats to beautiful corners of the earth. Keeping those boats afloat and earning a living as a carpenter gave him the skill set to launch a custom fine woodworking business. His use of reclaimed wood and old building parts reflect his deep respect for the environment. You can see his creations at Carpenter Daddy on Instagram, and get in touch with him on the web at www.andysfinewoodworking.com. Please welcome Andy Orsini. Now we're recording. Hey, Andy. <laughs> hey, Ryan.、How's、Thanks for coming over today. Yeah, no problem.、Um, I've had so much fun getting to know you.、Uh, you know, at the parking lot at school where our kids went, and、uh, having lunches with you. And、uh, we always end up talking about work, and it ranges to philosophy and life and all that. But today, I want to talk to you、uh, about your business, about your wood woodworking business. Would you call it woodworking business or fine carpentry? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that、uh, it's hard to it's hard to classify it. I mean, I guess I would say it's furniture making.、Right? Yeah, that's the best. That's the best kind、uh, of classification. I'm a furniture maker. Yeah. I like to think of myself as a carpenter because I think,、uh, as a carpenter, a skilled carpenter is a talented person that knows how to work wood and and make great joinery and and make really nice, pleasing things out of wood. Absolutely, yeah.、Um, you、uh, you started out as a carpenter, like a, more of a traditional carpenter, or or have you always been interested in、um, sort of the project model of、uh, of woodwork? I started out in rough construction. Okay,、um, rough. I would call it rough. <laughs> did a little bit of construction. Rough construction, <laughs> yes, hauling plywood. Yeah, and, and、uh, I actually started my first real carpentry job was working in Texas on a track home.、Uh, track track homes, I believe it、in、was、Texas. about five. At, well, the point that I got on the job, I think we were they were at like house six hundred and fifty. I think they had another. I think it was a thousand homes. So massive of, job outside of, and it was just endless. It was a job. It was a project where we had to put in baseboard and shelving and closet rods and hang cabinets,、mm. and basically we would trim out a house and a half in a day. Wow! It was really pretty rough work, but it was it was it was intelligent in the fact that you worked at becoming as efficient as possible. Yeah. That's its own its own end, isn't it? I mean, its own skill、yeah. uh, is the get developing a process that can be repeatable and lacks mistakes and lacks mistakes、yeah. and is and is extremely fast. It seems like you're doing the opposite of that now. <laughs> I looked at your website <laughs>、yeah. and I, all I see are beautiful pieces of furniture that have never existed and will never exist again, except for this time that you made them. 
how did you get into that coming from, you know, your tracked home, uh, finished carpentry background? You know, it was a long, slow process. And I would say that a lot, it involved a lot of, it, in, it involved a lot of instruction and a greater and greater degree of design, my input of design that, and, and, and obviously my input for that growing period was my labor and my expertise. But as, as, as I left that process and moved in the trajectory that I to get to where I am now, it was definitely a, uh, a process where my design meant nothing. My aesthetic meant nothing. And, mm. uh, and then eventually it meant a little bit and then more and more and more. And eventually my, design is now I would say probably one of the principal factors so you both take ideas from your clients but also contribute your design ideas yes so one of the things that I've worked pretty hard to do in the last probably four years is document um, the pieces that I've made with clients yeah. because the design process I do with clients is usually a collaborative process. They start with some image yeah. that they bring me and they say, I want a coffee table like this, but this is too small. It needs mm-hmm. to be bigger. Or, or can you add some you know, of your design sense mm-hmm. to it? And so as I build a body of work, people can see my body of work and say, I really like this guy's design aesthetic. I want something built for my kitchen Mm. that is in his design ethic Mm. and then at that point they can come to me and say i want this built it's similar to that thing you did and this thing you did and please please use your design aesthetic and make something beautiful that's cool so use this uh set of principles for design but build something completely different right like a kitchen table compared to a, a nightstand or right right that's, and that's cool and that's an interpretation of the design and the more the larger my body of work grows the 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 more people can accurately judge what my design aesthetic is and obviously you know it will there will be other artists with their design aesthetics and so my objective in the end would be for someone to look at my body of work and say I love your work. I want you to build me a, a dining room table mm. that's going to go in this magnificent room. Surprise me. Mm, wow. So that would be my objective. That's a lot of trust. Right? To, yeah. to have the clients believe that I can build what they want and they'll be happy with it. Yeah. How do you find your clients? I mean, that seems like a um, a particular person who has a need for a special piece. I mean, may, maybe I'm wrong and maybe there are more people in the world than, than I think, but you know, has a desire for a particular piece, uh, has the ability to pay for it. Um, you know, yeah, is that a challenge a tr- for you? That's a tricky one. Um, I think, boy, there's a couple things I could say about that one being close to Silicon Valley, you know, there's yeah. a lot of money and yeah. with people with money will be able to afford something that I can build. Yeah. Um, the oh i don't know there's so many different directions i could go with that question um having i would say word of mouth is my most effective tool yeah. right now but again having the website and the body of work um is powerful people can see what i've done um 
I had a strange uh, interaction with um, somebody working for a church in um, South Carolina. Mm. And they sent me an email, and they said they wanted a church chair okay. built for their church PA system that matched the pews in the church. Oh, wow. And I, there were, we went back and forth with uh, emails, and I said I could do it, and I gave them a price. Um, and I think the price ended up being too much for the budget. But huh. it was strange to me that someone would contact me from the other side of the country. Yeah. Because they saw my website. Yeah. So they found your website and saw what you have done. And right. I mean, that's an interesting problem because if you have a, a church that was built in a particular style and m- right. maybe not recently and right. you have to replace something, you're not just going to put in an Ikea chair where there's... Right. So their objective was to put something in that matched yeah. with the P- with and blend it in. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, uh, just strange clientele. I don't know. It's interesting. I have to say, sometimes my website um, is not that effective in finding the right clientele. I would say hmm. that word of mouth is probably the most okay. effective. And people people get on my website and they they search for furniture and they want me to repair an IKEA mm. side table. Oh uh, wow! And usually, the my the cost of the repair is more than the table original sure. cost. Well, maybe they'll get interested in something of higher quality after after talking <laughs> to you. I mean, what I noticed on your website is you do document your work quite a bit. Um, you know, I was amazed to see uh, the joinery, the sort of the your discussion of solving particular problems. I know people are listening to this, but. Um, you know, if you go to Andy's website, you can see the particular joints that he's using the, the, and some description of how you solve these problems. Um, I'm wondering if you document that um, as a method of uh, communicating with your clients or if you do that for yourself. I and mean, it seems like you enjoy the process a lot. Or is that documentation also proof sort of to clients of the quality of work you're doing? You know, future clients, I should say. That's an interesting question. No, it's not really proof. Um, it's, I think, sort of my nerdy school uh, uh, aspect of my intelligence that enjoys problem solving and and um, building furniture poses a lot of really interesting, complex problems that can be solved. And so I enjoy that solving process. And I think that's probably why I talk about it more. Uh, I would say I don't really talk about it to sell. Hmm. I hope that the aesthetic and the beauty of the piece sells. Right. And that, and people talk about that once they see your furniture. I mean, I've only seen pictures of it. I haven't actually seen it uh, in person, but it it always seems like with these kind of pieces, they have a different life in person than they do, you know, on the, on the page or the screen. Yes. And that is something that uh, attracted me to woodworking, um, that has led me to where I am. And I think that's one of the greatest attractions. And that was one of the most discouraging aspects of the biochemistry work at the biotech company. I, when I worked there, the, like, I would say that 90% of my physical, tangible time was spent with Petri dishes. Hmm. And everybody knows a Petri dish. 
right? Imagine your universe yeah. is in a petri dish. Yeah. It's really, it was sort of de demoralizing for me. And the furniture, the the pictures of the furniture are great, but the tangibility of the furniture is paramount. That is mm. the most important aspect of it. It's a physically tangible thing made out of wood, which is also a, an appealing, tangible item that we all love. Yeah. Um, it seems like there's, well, I know for me, at least, um, I sort of romanticize uh, not not only woodworking, but working with, with my hands. Um you know, and it seems like a lot of people these days are dealing with purely information, lots of email, um, just, you know, distributing information um, on computers. And you've found a way to, you know, work with your hands and work with, uh, you know, materials and create beautiful things. Do you feel, can you, t I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, can you tell a difference in who you are doing this kind of work compared to when you were, you know, living in a Petri dish? Yeah, it's, it's a hundred percent opposite. It's really, it is really, really true that working with your hands or doing something you really love is incredibly rewarding. Yeah. There's no question about that. And I think, I think people who, don't do it and work in an intangible world mm. where they're processing information. When they do work in a physical world, they're blown away by it because it really is, it, it really is incredibly rewarding. And I think, uh, you know, there's a huge market in the woodworking industry for retired engineers mm -hmm. who have worked on paper their whole lives and then all of a sudden want to work with something tangible mm. and they start a woodworking. That's their second, career that's their post-retirement career mm -hmm. the market for that uh is huge and it's not i mean it's it is a very powerful thing to make something with your hands mm -hmm. and to make something that's really pleasing to you is wonderful and then to make something really pleasing for other people is twice that mm -hmm. it's really great oh wow yeah, so as the gift, have have you been able to um, share any of this with your kids? I mean, are they interested in making things as well? I remember, you know, good times spent with my dad and him showing me or trying to show me how to, you know, use a Dremel tool properly or you know, um, do some basic woodworking. And I, you know, I have these profound memories. Have you been able to share that with with your children at all? You know, unfortunately, that's one of the hard things I've sort of struggled with. I have a friend, Andrew, who. Um, his son and him work in the shop a lot mm. and build a lot of really neat things and I have not been able to do that. I think partially part of it is that I work in a shop that is really loud yeah. and my kids, my older son in particular is very sensitive to loud noises yeah. and so I he fears several of the machines that I use frequently and so yeah. I've struggled to I've debated in my mind whether I should invest in quieter machinery so that I can mm. uh, sort of pass on some of those things. So I've been waiting. I haven't yeah. really drawn them into the shop mm. as much as I should. <laughs> um, and I have to say that's something I I would like to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on that, on the same topic, I guess uh, is like you know um, working with the hands is therapy. Do you, I mean, 
I keep thinking that one of the things we're, you know, that we're maybe we're missing in society is that we're, we're no longer creating things. We're consuming media, um, you know, whether that be videos or music or podcasts or, or whatnot, but not a lot of us are making things anymore. Do you think there's a way, uh, for maybe not, not everybody's going to make furniture. Um, do you think there's a way that people can get into word working in an easy way? I know that the, you know, these makers fairs are, are popular and maybe there's sort of a grassroots effort to get people making things again. Do you, do you see a, an easy Avenue for that? Or do you have any advice for people that would like to start working with their hands? Uh, I would say that the safest, easiest tool is a table bandsaw and a table bandsaw, uh, is one of the safest tools in the shop. And it allows you to do a tremendous amount with just the bandsaw. So table bandsaw is, I mean, it, it sounds like a uh, specialty tool to me, but maybe I'm missing the point. What's, what does it do? What's its purpose? So a bandsaw is used frequently in, in the woodworking business, um, and it's a blade uh, that's a band. It's okay. like a rubber band, and uh -huh. it and it's, uh, rotates around two wheels, a top and a bottom wheel. Okay. And you basically push wood into the blade as the blade travels downwards. Okay. And so the force of the blade pulls whatever you have down into the table. Uh. So it's extremely safe. And the blade is very visible. So it's very unlikely that you will push okay. your fingers into the blade. So it's a very safe tool. And in my shop, there are two bandsaws. One for making radial curves mm -hmm. and, and one for resawing wood. And mm. where I take a, a piece of really nice wood and I cut into slices. And so the... Bandsaw is a very powerful tool. It has a lot of uses, but if you buy a benchtop version, the wheels are smaller, mm -hmm. the circumference of the band is smaller, mm -hmm. and it's not a very loud tool, and it allows you to cut all kinds of shapes. Whatever mm. shape you want to cut, you want to cut little circles, you want to cut S-curves, you can do it with a bandsaw. Mm. And, and on top of all that utility is it's one of the safest tools in the shop. Nice. So I would recommend getting a bandsaw if you really want to start making small things. That's uh -huh. a great place to start. Okay. So you start out with the shape and then maybe you smooth it and yeah, shape it. Yeah, you can sand yeah. it and shape yeah. it in, in other ways. I know um, there was this really famous box maker, or sorry, really famous woodworker, and he made a, a line of boxes that were simply purely out of pleasure. He mm. would take a scrap of wood from a big furniture product and he would make a little tiny box on a bandsaw, and he would use the bandsaw exclusively. And he'd make this box and do a little bit of sanding, mm -hmm. and all these boxes had such quirky, weird shapes. And the the line, his line of boxes became almost as famous as his furniture. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason for that is because of the simplicity and the enjoyment that he got out of mm -hmm. making those boxes. So I noticed that the, your first post as uh, Carpenter Andy is is boxes. Um, <laughs> is it boxes? Yeah, no, it is. There's these beautiful boxes, and it's funny because I've always, you know, I've gone into stores. Uh, you know, we have a lot of wonderful artists here in Santa Cruz, and um, you know, whenever I see a box like a, a fine wooden box, I think I want that. And I don't even have anything I need to put in right? it. Right, and it's you know, wood, just like I right? want it. Um, <laughs> do you still make boxes? And I mean, you know, not everyone's going to order that um, amazing redwood bed that's custom made for their room uh, that you do. I don't even know how long that takes, but but it seems like everybody might be able to do you, to make a or to get a box. Do you still? 
Do you still do those? I do a batch. Yeah. Usually I do a batch of boxes and I have a theme that I follow and I make, uh, you know, 10, you know, 10 to 15 boxes that are all sort of somewhat related and yeah. I do it before open studios every okay. year. So if I have the time this year, I might not have the time, but I do have boxes left over from previous years. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I don't, I don't know what it is about this little space, you know, this little finely crafted space, but, uh, it's an easy capsule 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 of wood and the pleasing aspects of wood. And yeah. because of its size, it's, it's easy to transport. It's yeah. appealing. It, you get to see the wood grain and you get to see the sort of sometimes complex joinery involved mm-hmm. in the piece and you get to you see it as an imme- immediately what it says to you is this is finely made and it's made out of high quality material mm-hmm. and the wood is is pleasing right and so you can see that within that small size so the box is nice in that it allows me to express my skill mm. and display really pretty wood yeah. in a, in a in a affordable form mm. Do you find, um, you know, obviously you can kind of crank out boxes uh, a little more quickly than you can crank out some of the the custom pieces you do. Do you find uh, pleasure in that reproducibility and that um, that quicker turnover, or do you really enjoy digging deep into these, you know, large problems or these these big projects that are complex and and um, you know? they're big. It just strikes me as how large some of these things are too. Um, I think if I made that redwood bed over and over again, I would become bored with it. Mm-hmm. So the thing that I, that is exciting to me and, and pleasurable in the box making process is that I get to take a, a specific design theme and I get to repeat it with a different wood, a mm. different size, a different shape, a different lid, mm-hmm. a different, a different joint for the edge of the box. So mm-hmm. the, the process is probably 80% the same, but I get to explore a different, different subtleties within the, the whole theme. And you see this a lot with art. Artists will, will do a series of projects that are all related, right? right. And they're inspired from the same theme and then they expand on it and so the the box and the cutting boards and spoons these projects tend to be for me um a repetitive exploration of a design theme Mm. which i like and i one of my main themes in my in my woodworking is using different colored woods different Mm -hmm. woods so i don't ever stain wood at all oh wow change i don't ever change the color of the original wood so i use woods that have really beautiful contrasting colors and contrasting grains mm. and I combine those in a way that I f- find really pleasing. For example, I'll give you the the most interesting pleasing combination I've found is this combination of maple, white oak and purple heart. Okay. And if you look there's a lap desk I made and I made it a second I made it several times for different clients okay. but if you look at the lap desk it's predominantly maple but it has white oak panels and then it has 
purple heart tabs, little tabs that you you know you're supposed to touch and lift and and you move the 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 lap desk around with these little tabs. What, tell me what a lap desk is. Is it <coughs> as simple as it sounds? A lap desk is a is a little wood box that you put on your lap okay. to write. Yeah. To write letters. Basically, oh. you lie in bed and you write Useful. letters. Letters. Right. So <laughs> letters. Right. So the last two lap desks I made were designed to. Uh, specifically for a pad. And so you sit with the okay. lap desk on your lap and you put the pad on oh, the nice. slightly rec- slightly inclined aspect of the lap desk. But yeah. the, the thing about the lap desk, the thing about that project that was uh, really exciting to me was that I found these three types of wood that go together beautifully. The color mm. and, the, and the grain, the white oak, maple, and purple heart. And that's really, it was a very pleasing accident that I found that. Hmm. So, you know, <coughs> it sounds like that's, you know, the lap desk is something you did get the um, uh, luxury of repeating and exploring kind of similar to the boxes and yes. different than the large projects. Um, yes. How do you then... Um, I know you you said you work with models, uh, scale models of some of your things. How how did you come up with that idea and uh, you know to to refine your your bigger work? Uh, that concept has been around for a long time. Okay. If you look at Danish modern, yeah, there's quite a few chair makers that utilize that process um, fairly extensively, and they design chairs and they build the chairs and and they have the model next to the yeah. chair once it's built. Okay. So Fun. it's a, it's a it's an established what's strange to me maybe I don't know enough furniture makers but what's strange to me is frequently when I make the models people laugh and sort of um joke about it or make fun of it in mm. a way that's that's surprising to me because maybe maybe I had sort of a similar idea before I really started making furniture, that it was sort of silly. The model idea. The model yeah. idea, but it's so profoundly effective that it that it's like every time I I do it, I I find it more powerful. It's, it's one of those techniques where you think it's silly, and then you do it once, you're like, "Wow, that was great!" And then mm. you and then you do it again, you're like, "Holy cow, that's amazing!" And then like the twentieth time you do it, you still learning tremendous amounts mm. from from that process yeah i hadn't thought of it until you mentioned it and and then, and then once you mentioned it i can't really imagine why someone would not make a model of a design especially if it's a new design uh, you know to get the proportions and like you said some of the problem solving aspects of it yes. fleshed out so a lot of people use um use cad right uh, okay. cad is cad is the cad and there's quite a few design software that feeds directly into you know cnc machines mm-hmm. where they can do the design it's visual mm-hmm. it's not you can take a piece of furniture and rotate on a screen mm-hmm. but it's still not the same i mean yeah. one of the things i do when i if i'm making a bed that's going to be a bed made out of walnut i take walnut and i mill it into little parts mm. And if I'm going to make another aspect of the bed out of, out of a different material, I take that material mm-hmm. and I mill it into little so tiny parts. So you use parts. the actual material. So I use the actual material. So I think that the, I think that there's, if I were skilled with CAD and design, I might 
do my design work on the computer, but I'm not, mm. unfortunately. <laughs> so, well, it sounds like it's, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like, you know, you, you profoundly enjoy working with your hands. And even if you could do it with CAD, there's something about, you know, the, the size, the weight, the colors and the actual material and yes. the doing that you enjoy. Yes. And that, in that regard, I might, yeah, I might, not, I might be like one of those engineers that likes that really is tired of designing on the computer and mm. wants to do it with their hands. Um, I did construction for a little while and I remember, you know, I was not skilled at all, but I, I worked with some skilled uh, carpenters. And one of the things I always heard was the carpenters complaining about the architect's design because they always felt like the architect has no idea how this is going to play out with the actual materials on the site. Right. And it, so you're sort of the architect and the, the carpenter. Uh, That's a great, it's a great that I can, I, yes, because the furniture is small, I get to do that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes I feel like I, I wish I had some education in the engineering of mm. of the the load bearing uh the weight distribution mm -hmm. you know what certain wood one thing that's amazing about wood that is as a as a as a building material is its resilience is really pretty fantastic and I think that we build a lot with metal right we build a lot with wood, but when you make a piece of furniture the 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 strength of wood in the way that it is it's grown it's we frequently as woodworkers use that wood we utilize the natural strength of the wood mm. in our design and i think that's and i think that what it allows is you can make really thin elegantly designed mm. pieces of furniture it's interesting i was thinking about this recently that um there's a wood i found i discovered um several years ago and it was a wood called Port Orford Cedar and it's not readily available around here but mm -hmm. I found a, a place a lumber yard that was selling it as deck boards they were selling two by six uh, Port Orford Cedar as deck boards and I was for like decking for a on deck, a house for okay a deck yeah. so instead of redwood yeah okay it's cedar right and then I started using the wood and it's incredibly aromatic and huh and the grain was incredibly straight. And huh. a lot of the pieces I was getting, the grain was very tight. Yeah. And so I could make these. And I, as I researched more about different woods, I found out that Port Orford cedar was used for masts and sailing boat spars. Okay. And so the strength in the Port Orford cedar was extremely significant to the weight ratio, the strength okay. to weight ratio, because of the way the tree grew. Yeah. And so I found out, I started using that wood as a, a material for stilts because it's right. light and it's incredibly strong. It's used for masts on boats. And it's, right? yeah, that and lightness. You wouldn't want a clunky stilt. You wouldn't want a, a clunky stilt, so up. a light stilt. Yeah. And, and then I used it more as a, as a wood because it's incredibly aromatic. And I, huh. I made quite a few pieces of furniture out of it. And then all of a sudden there was, a, a unfortunately, a, a disease that uh, went through the stock and... And they no longer sold it. And wow. so I was, I was looking around to try and find some. And I discovered that 80 to 90% of the higher quality stock is sent directly to Japan. Oh, wow. And they use it to make shoji screens. Uh, and they use it to make fine furniture and yeah. spoons. And and um, they use it to, you know, to to build beautiful things out of 
wood because of its excellent strength to weight ratio. Right. That makes sense because, um, and I remember looking at you and talking to you a little bit about the, the big project of the Shoji screens and the tight tolerances. That makes so much sense that you'd need something that's very straight and has a fine grain and a straight grain for that kind of project. Straight grain, light, great yeah. weight. Wait to what's interesting is that the I used a lot of old growth redwood in that um, in the Shoji screen project, and that has the same characteristics. Mm. Extremely like tight grain had excellent weight to strength ratios. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's you have the artistic and technical side of your business, uh, which is a hard one. It takes years. Um, but you also have the business side, you know, the the part where you're able to support your family and 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 um, provide yourself with the freedom to be a great dad. I would say that's more entrepreneurial. How um, how did you arrive at this balance? You know, to be someone that can be there for their family, yet have a business, yet stay satisfied. Um, you know, in expressing your artistic. Uh, parts of your personality too it seems like such a complex balance how did you sort of flesh it out for yourself well a trial and error i don't i think that um initially it's interesting my wife and i had this plan where i would be a carpenter and and build things and she would be an engineer and we'd both work Mm part-time and we'd raise our children together Mm -hmm. right and that idea as we worked and as you know my wife discovered quickly that it's uh, you don't have much credibility as a part-time engineer, mm-hmm. even less credibility as a part-time car- than as a, par- a part-time carpenter. So I got a lot of slack uh, during my time as a carpenter, mm. less so these days, but quite a bit several years ago, about not being at the job site mm-hmm. forty hours a week, right? Right to go pick up your kids, and I think as a society we're becoming more open to the idea that our kids are more important than a 40-hour work week. Productivity, right? right? Your, your emotional contribution to your children and your family are more important than putting in 40 hours and the, the, the profit margin, mm. I think. And I think as a whole, it's good. It comes from, it's an element of women's liberation that I, that I like, is that men can take care of the children, and, and be the principal caretaker. And so I, f- I find that I am happy about our society changing in that way. I know I have uh, an, uh, one of my wife's older friends, her husband was a stay-at-home dad for many mm-hmm. years, and he was discriminated against in some ways that I find incredibly offensive. Mm. Like somebody called the police. He was at the park with his children, oh, and someone wow. called the police. Yeah. And said, "Who is this man with these children? Has mm-hmm. he kidnapped them? Has he?" Mm-hmm. And so the policeman questioned the guy, and you know, and I, I, it was very quickly apparent that those were his kids, right? And he was a stay-at-home dad. But yeah. at that time, it was less acceptable, and now it's more acceptable. And I, I'm, I'm glad for that. I think that it's hard to, it's hard. In a world where our wages are slowly equalizing with the rest of the world. Yeah. Our wages are dropping. Yeah. And our standard of living is dropping and it's hard to make a living without both parents, both 
women and men working together in the workforce. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see this shift. And then at the same time, uh, I'm sure you'll agree with this. That's a dangerous thing to say. Um, I look back at, you know, what my dad knew uh, and in how to be a, a dad and a father. And he was a great dad, but he was a lot less involved than you or I or a lot of the dads that I come across nowadays. It seems like we are choosing to work less or to work a less stable job and maybe they're just less available maybe the um you know the corporate job that you're going to retire from with the gold watch is just no longer there so we're not in the yeah right right but it's like it's incredibly valuable to be so part of our kids lives maybe that's one of the unsung benefits of being an entrepreneur (laughs) that's a funny idea yeah i think that i think that as a society, we are valuing our children more and and I think valuing our time with our children more. I think that's I think in many cultures that is that there are things that the culture values intrinsically um, food, for example. Mediterranean culture, food mm-hmm. is a really oh, yeah. important aspect, yeah. right? And dining together, right? And I think that uh, as a culture, we are starting to value children and our time with our children right. more. And I think that that's a great, great cultural change. Yeah. Um, would you? Do, okay. So, before we wrap it up, do you have any advice to people that are wanting to, um, you know, get involved in the trades or? Uh, learn to work with their hands and their mind more so than just following a a standard job that's already out there for them. I mean, like the in terms of your process and how you develop the skills, um, had the confidence in yourself to do this. Anything? Um, I would say if you can apprentice, um, mm. I would suggest one of the things that I I did not do very well in college, which I should have done is I should have apprenticed, I should have worked in a biotech company mm. before I really did, because then I would have realized that I may like the study of of biology and biochemistry, but the application is something that I didn't enjoy that much. Mm. And so I strongly suggest that as if you are a young person in school, in college, internship as much as possible, mm. because then you get to explore the different industries and you get insider information. You get to ask that old guy who's been doing it for 40 years, hey, mm-hmm. What do you think about this business? And he might be bitter, and he might give you all the bad sides of it, but he might also be happy and content, and he might give you the, the good sides. And you can judge for yourself what you think is valuable, and then you can you can make a much more informed decision because the world of education does not teach you many aspects of the world of work and industry. Right. Those are right. things that you learn by yourself, that you learn from peers or from mentors or from people you apprentice with and then and the greatest the greatest industrialists of our century never learned anything that they used i never what they learned they learned by themselves and and their own creativity they didn't learn it in school right not in school maybe from their peers as well from their peers or from people doing it or from their mentors right but they didn't so i think that i think that that uh, Dipping your toes in the workforce mm. for young people is very is very potent mm-hmm. and effective. The other thing I have to say about people who are in midlife or 
older or younger and have a career, don't be afraid to do the thing you like mm-hmm. or the thing you love. And even if you do it part time mm-hmm. with a regular job, mm-hmm. do it and you'll find ways to do more of it. And mm-hmm. in fact, you'll get really good at it. And then at some point, you can shift over and make a living doing that thing that you love. If you find you love it, right? It seems sort of analogous to the idea of um, you building the model. Like you build the scale model, the smaller model of the furniture first is like mentor a little bit with someone. See if you like it. Yes. Try a little bit. See if it's your thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there's a lot of advice in, um, well, in the past years, there's been a lot of advice uh, about doing what you're passionate about um, and jumping in and, and taking the leap and having faith and starting something brand new. But what strikes me is, you know, you gained a lot of skill with wood uh, and your hands before you made the jump to being an artist that produced custom furniture. I mean, you did a a lot of hard. It was a slow process where my design input at the beginning was almost nil. And yeah. it was a, yeah. I would say it was a 10 to 15 year process where my design input became more significant. And yeah. you, you know, if I, if I went to school and I uh, designed school and I studied design, maybe I would, um, maybe I would have been able to approach it in a more rapid fashion, but then I wouldn't have had the education in, in the building industry, which is valuable. And it's hard to get that education without, there's no school that teaches you rough construction. Right. Yeah. The way you learn rough construction is by going into the <laughs> trades and learning rough construction. Yeah. Right? There's no school. There's, so in that regard, I mean, I agree with the carpenters in that the the architect should have a, a brief education in rough construction. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you uh, for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah. And uh, I hope to own some of your art someday. Maybe just that box that I <laughs> that I wanted for. I, I remember the first box I ever saw was here in Santa Cruz. You know, it was some beautiful art, and I just I wanted it. So maybe that's my first piece. Great. Well, that was a pleasure. Thanks, Brian. Andy. Hey, that's the show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check out Andy's work on Instagram at Carpenter Daddy and www.andysfinewoodworking.com. I really enjoyed learning from him. The concept of building scale models before taking on larger tasks really, um, I mean, it sounds obvious, like he said, but when you do it uh, and you find yourself gaining some traction on a project and getting started sooner than later, it really makes a difference. Um, I tend to get in my head and think that I have to have uh, things perfect before I can really begin, uh, you know, have a perfect plan. And that doesn't work out too well. You don't get as many repetitions and iterations of the project. So I appreciate him teaching me today. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear about it. And if you know someone with a story that simply ought to be told, please drop me a line at untoldsantacruz at gmail.com. Talk to you soon.